Good morning. I know that sometimes in church we can exaggerate things. I know that my personality tends to exaggerate literally everything I ever say. Like literally that sentence right there. But when it comes to this study that we've been going through the book of Acts since January, except for our little summer break, we've been using phrases like, this is a monumental moment. Everything changes here. And it might sound like we're making too big of a deal of this. I love, I read a pastor who said this, that's the way it is with new beginnings. This really is historical, specifically the passage that we're going to jump back into the book of Acts this morning. One pastor said this, it's almost impossible to overstate the historical importance of this moment in the history of the world. How's that for a big sentence? It's almost impossible to overstate the importance of this moment in the history of earth. It's a a big moment. That's the way it is with new beginnings. But this isn't just the new beginning of something with the apostles or even with Jesus. This is our beginning. Those of us who believe that we are part of the body of Christ, part of the church of Jesus Christ, this is our origin story. Right? Every now and then a great movie comes out and it's so good that they have to do another movie that's before the movie so that we can learn the origin story. Right? Uh, My sons really this summer wanted to go see one of those epic origin stories called Minions, The Rise of Gru. (laughs) We just took our oldest to college. What do you want to do before you leave? Go see Minions. Okay. Wow. This is our... Rise of Gru. This is our backstory. This is our origin story. And so we're not studying somebody else's history, which is helpful. It's helpful to study somebody else's history. This is our story. So please grab your Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, no worries. There should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't own one of these, uh, we want this to be our gift to you today. Because we're about to say a creed about how highly we value this book and what we believe it actually is. And if that's where you're at in your journey today, then we invite you to join with us in that declaration today. So let's hold up our Bibles and let's declare this with some confidence and some authority this morning. The Bible is the word of God and the truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me. For your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. As you're turning there, I know we have some guests today, so I think what I'm about to say might feel a little lost on you. But I told a story a a long while back, about two and a half years ago, my sons were at school, and I chose to go cut our neighbor's yard for them to do like a nice loving deed for them. And then Ethan really um, said something mean that hurt my feelings afterwards. I'm just kidding, uh, but I'm going to leave it just at that, just to make him mad. Um, while I was mowing the grass that day, that story, maybe some of you remember, um, I wanted to listen to something encouraging. I'd been studying all day. It was in the afternoon, and my brain was fried. And so I was like, I just want to listen to an encouraging word. And throughout my entire adult life, uh, one of my favorite preachers has been a guy named Louis Giglio. And so I pulled up YouTube. I put in my AirPod Pros, because Apple is the only way to listen to Jesus. And... Um, I pulled up, that's quite the murmur. 
Um, and so I, I uh, just hopped on YouTube and pulled up whatever the first sermon that popped up was one that I didn't recognize the title of. And so I was like, okay, I'll listen to that one. I didn't realize that I was listening to sermon number three, maybe four, I can't remember, uh, sermon three or four in a six-week series. So I was actually kind of listening to this thing in the middle, and I realized he's doing a six-week sermon series on the book of Acts. And I'm like, you can't cover Acts in six weeks. What's he doing? Come on, Louie. But this sermon was so good. It was such an incredible picture of where we are in this grander story than just our moment. And it was so good. And for years, I've been wanting to preach through the book of Acts. I just knew it was going to be like a really long series. And so I kind of just hadn't felt peace from the Holy Spirit. And as I was listening to this sermon about Acts chapter 13, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, it's about to be time. I'm finally going to let you preach through the book of Acts. I think it's a dangerous thing when a preacher preaches another preacher's sermon. But I think it's really unhealthy when they don't give him credit for it. So I'm not going to plagiarize this morning. This outline or this overview of where we are in the story, I want to give most of the credit to Louis Giglio, although some of the other study, I was like, oh, I don't like that word. We're going to change that. But um, I want to give honor where honor is due. This is where this whole, what's going to be over one year journey together, kind of began, was in my neighbor's yard, listening to this overview of the text. So what I say all that to say what we're about to read is not going to sound, probably, nearly as monumental as it actually is. First three verses of Acts chapter 13 is all we're going to cover this morning. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. It's going to list five of those prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, after fasting some more (laughs) and praying, they laid their hands on them. And sent them, sent them off. The question is, why is this moment in the story so significant and how is it our story? That's what I want to seek to answer this morning. By giving an overview of where we've covered the ground we've covered in the book of Acts through the first 12 chapters. So if you're a guest today, congratulations. We're gonna, you're gonna get the really short version of what everybody else has sat through for, through a whole lot of weeks, right? I want to run through this overview of, of where we are at this point in the book of Acts. And, and the first thing I'm gonna say is this. The story that we belong to begins with the resurrection. I was waiting for the applause to die down. Okay, here's the deal, y'all. I know we're not a very vocal church, and I don't want us to pretend to be a different personality than we are. But I just want to park here for a second and have a conversation like family, okay? There's two reasons that a pastor encourages the congregation to respond. The first one is insecurity. That wasn't meant to be nearly as funny as apparently it was. 
Most pastors are like, can I get an amen? Because they're like, did that, I don't know, did I come out right? I don't. And the more that I've been talking to y'all for 13 and a half years, the less I need you to approve of what I'm saying. I don't mean that ugly at all. But I don't, I don't, I don't need you to affirm me today. Like I've reached a place in life where I know I'm not the best preacher in town and I sleep great at night. Like I'm doing the best I can. And if that's not good enough, I don't know what to tell you. You know what I mean? Like that's not an arrogance thing. I don't think I'm awesome. I just think I'm me. And that's what you're stuck with. So here we go. Okay. So I'm not asking for your affirmation. Here's the second reason that a pastor encourages a congregation to respond. Because it's good for you. It's good for you to go outside your comfort zone and make an audible noise that reminds you that you are a participant in this thing and not a spectator. And when we say stuff up here that's like banner stuff about our faith, we're supposed to affirm that truth together. Not affirm the person who said it or sang it or prayed it. We affirm the truth together. Because the reality is I think people stumble into this place every week who are hungry for hope. And they want to know if you actually believe what's being said up here. And, and it's important that we say this whole story begins with resurrection from the dead. How's that for hope? Like our story actually doesn't begin with the cross. Hold on, I'm not a heretic. We are not saved by the death of Jesus alone because there's been a lot of martyrs throughout history who couldn't save me. It's when he rose from the dead that everything changed. All of a sudden that sacrifice raises other dead things to life. The resurrection is not just Jesus' story. It's our story. It's the very beginning. It's the very foundation. It's the very banner. It's the very point. We are the people of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen. There you go. Good job. We start with resurrection. That's where the book of Acts begins. Verse number 3 of chapter 1 says, Jesus appeared after his suffering. Through many proofs, there's evidence of the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're not just crazy that we believe that. There were many proofs that Jesus raised from the dead, and that's where the whole story begins. After he raises from the dead, he says, this is not just a truth to enjoy. There's a mission attached to my resurrection. Namely, that you would witness or testify or speak of my resurrection from the dead for the salvation of the souls of men and women and children in the whole world. The mission, and Jesus speaks in uh, uh, verse number 8 of chapter 1. He says, I want you to wait for a minute. You're going to receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you're going to speak of me. You're going to testify of me. You're going to be my witnesses where you live, the area around you, and everywhere else. Here, there, and everywhere. Right? So uh, we've got some maps here this morning. That's why we're, I know we don't usually use the TV, but it just felt like I had to touch something, and that's way too far away. So let, let us see our first map here. He said, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. This is where it begins. None of us live in Jerusalem, but wherever you live is your circle. 
Amen. Starts in your house. We make disciples under our roof. We make disciples on our street. And we make disciples in our city. That's our Jerusalem. And Judea and Samaria. That's the next. Which for us would be like our region of the planet. Our our, the South, you could say, or even our nation, right? That we're, we're being witnesses of the resurrected one in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, and everywhere else too. This is the mission. The cause of Jesus was not to raise himself from the dead and say, yay me. His mission was to raise himself from the dead and say, don't you think everybody needs to know about this? <laughs> That's the mission. And we are all invited into the mission of God. So he tells them to wait for that power. And by the beginning of the next chapter, chapter number two, we see the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on his followers. They are gathered uh, at this festival, the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after his resurrection. And the power of the Holy Spirit falls on them because what Jesus promises always comes true. And he promised them the power of the Holy Spirit, not primarily for their enjoyment, but for the purpose of the mission. A lot of songs now that talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit are actually very man-centered. I want the Holy Spirit to come make me feel better. The reality is the power of the Holy Spirit is to put a new message, a new witness, a new uh, thing to testify in our mouths, namely the hope of the resurrection. So the witness of the the power, rather, uh, of the Holy Spirit falls so that they could be his witnesses. This happens among the nations. This is so crucial that we understand this. Jesus did not promise that the Holy, he said, wait on the Holy Spirit. He didn't tell them when it would come. He didn't promise them the when. He told them to wait. And they waited. Why didn't the Holy Spirit come three days later? Because apparently God likes three days. Big things happen after three days. But he didn't wait for three days. Fifty days after Passover, He pours out the spirit. Why? Because all the nations were represented in that spot, in that moment. This is the way Louis Giglio said it, and it gave me warm fuzzies. And so I'm going to say it to you. The nations exist in our story in day one. Missions is not an auxiliary thing the church does on the side. It's at the very beginning Of the story that we've been invited into are the nations. So here's another nifty little map that shows what's happening on Pentecost. People traveled from everywhere to come to Jerusalem where the spirit was poured out so that all the nations were represented on the day the gospel was first proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is an important historical moment. As a matter of fact, uh, Acts chapter number 2, verse 5 says, There were people from every nation under heaven. Those words matter. There was representatives in town for the festival. That's why I was waiting. Holy Spirit wasn't late. He was waiting on everybody. (laughs) How good is that? He drew the people together from every nation so that they could hear the story of God. And then that's what happened. The next thing we see in this story, in this overview, is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He proclaims what? He speaks Jesus. That Jesus was crucified as a sacrifice for sin and he raised from the dead. Which makes him unlike anybody else who's ever lived. He speaks Jesus. 
That's the proclamation of the gospel. That's chapter 2. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all 12, 12 chapters. Somebody's doing the math going, wait, we're in 13. This is going to take a minute. This is chapter 2. Actually, we're not done with chapter 2. That's what starts a few verses into chapter 2. Praise God. He bears fruit in that. I want to say this. The reason we said the nations were there before we said that Jesus was spoken is this incredible verse. Verse number 6 says, they were all bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Ha! What a mercy. The first time the gospel was ever proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, people heard it in their heart language. Because God loves every nation, every people, every tribe, and every nation. Proclamation of the gospel. And then praise God, fruit was born. There was repentance. People acknowledged, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, that's why Christ died. I repent of my sin. In that confession and repentance, there is salvation. We are saved from our sins. And then we declare that or display that through the act of baptism. That's what we watched happen this morning. The physical sign that represents repentance and receiving the gift of salvation. When it happened on that day, thousands of people repented of their sins, were saved, and then were baptized. I don't think they squeezed that in the middle of one song. I think it took a minute. That's a whole lot of baptizing. And then these people, at the end of Acts chapter 2, become ecclesia. A community, a family, a gathering on mission. We've said that ecclesia, the, the, which is the word that's translated in our English Bibles as church, is actually not a religious word. The word ecclesia is those who are called out and they assemble. They don't assemble around each other. They assemble around some kind of cause. Ecclesia at this time in history could have been a political gathering. It could have been a gathering to help the poor or the needy. It could have been a gathering to go fishing. It could have been a gathering. Well, they did that for work. So what did they do if they couldn't go fishing for a hobby because they did it for a living? I've never had that thought before. Okay. Because there wasn't football back then. It's just tragic. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Okay, um, squirrel. So they gather around a cause, right? So what's our cause? The proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what unites us. That's the thing. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Let me just for now say what we've said again and again in this series, but it has to be repeated. Church is not a place. Church is a people gathered around a cause. It's not an institution. It is not a business organization. It's not an event that we attend like a spectator. This is not the Garth Brooks concert. Church is a people. So we use language like, hey, I'm going to church. <laughs> or really, we use language more like, I haven't decided yet if I'm going to go to church this weekend. And, and, and we talk about that, and I think it's fine to, to, to word it that way, but technically, no, you don't. You decide that you're going to come to the place where the church is. That's why we come to the place. The reason we come to the place is because we're part of who's here. We're church together on mission, a mission that's bigger than us. We are not consumers. We are united on a mission 
That's what makes church, church. And I love the description in the end of Acts uh, Acts chapter 2. They are united around the teaching of God's word. They're united around serving one another, breaking bread, worshiping together. And then they actually do it. Because the beginning of the next chapter, they're going to the temple for the afternoon prayer. And Peter and John see a guy who's been lame his entire life. The guy's at over 40 years old. He's never taken a step on his own. He's been carried to that gate, uh, a gate of the temple every day of his life to beg for money. He's at the beautiful gate on this particular day. He's asking for money. Peter and John said, we don't have silver or gold, but we'll give you what we got in that name, the name of the resurrected one, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he doesn't slowly, gingerly get up and go, I don't know, I've never walked before. I look like a baby deer. He immediately leaps to his feet and starts dancing in the temple of God and run around like a crazy person who just experienced resurrection power through the name that is above every name. And Peter sees this crowd that's gathering to watch the guy dance like a crazy person and goes, you know what? Last time a lot of people listened to me, we saw some cool stuff happen. And he speaks Jesus again in front of a bigger crowd this time out at Solomon's porch because go east side. It's on the east side of the temple. And thousands of people repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ and are born again. That's the mission. That's what unites us. And man, don't you just think people would love a community like that? And the next thing we read in the story is not acceptance, it's opposition. The response of the power structure that existed politically and religiously was threatened by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter and John are immediately arrested. Threatened. Their lives are threatened if they speak Jesus. And with this profound boldness, they stood in front of the most powerful people they'd ever met. And they said, actually, we met one person more powerful than you. And we'd rather obey God than you. And they left that boldness, that incredible resolve. And they went and gathered with the people of God and said, you won't believe what just happened and how we were threatened. And you know what they did? They prayed for more boldness. They prayed for more resolve in the mission. See, when there's opposition, you've got to have resolve if the mission's going to continue. I just wonder if the story were written in the American church today. Would we read, there's opposition, and then the story ended? Because we want people to like us. And they prayed for more resolve. They prayed for more boldness. God granted that, and it just made the power structure more angry. And so by the time we get to chapter 6 and 7, we have the rise and eventual martyrdom of Stephen. The first person other than Jesus to die for the church. Stephen is martyred for his faith in Jesus. Surely this will be the end of the story. I mean, think about how quick we're running through this. This is a fragile little thing called the church, and there's already been a martyrdom. Like, man, let's go find something else to do. Remember, ecclesia is a generic word. We can find another cause. 
that might not cost us our lives. But here's the deal. When your story, when your story starts with resurrection, death is no longer an ending. Death doesn't stop the story because we follow the death defeater. Just what he does. It's what he's done in our own lives. It's interesting. I hear, I hear people kind of freaking out today by the opposition that the people of God are experiencing. And I want to say two things to that. Number one, can we please think historically? We're the freest the people of God have ever been. We've got it the easiest that the followers of Jesus have ever had it. But that's not primarily what I was going to say. We're the children of the resurrection, y'all. We're going to be fine. (laughs) Comedians made fun of our faith. And we're like, what? Come on. There's a politician that doesn't agree with your worldview. You're going to make it. We're the children of the resurrection. Like we stare death in the face and go, yeah, uh, you lost. P.S. You lose. There's a holy confidence in that. And we're not so easily rattled. We're in this moment of, of risky investments, right? Anybody wish they wouldn't have bought so much Bitcoin? Stock, stock markets all over the map. What's going on with real estate? And don't even talk to me about your tech investments. It's the hottest thing today and it's obsolete tomorrow. <laughs> Here's a secure investment. The church of Jesus Christ will endure until Jesus comes to get her. The gates of hell can't even prevail against his ecclesia. We're good. What happens after death is not the end of the story. And let me just say this. There's still plenty of time for you to get in on the story. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've never placed your faith in the one who died for you and then raised from the dead for you. There's good news. You can still get invited into that story today. But because we serve the one who's resurrected after death and martyrdom, instead something else happened. Scattering. See, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria. And then to the ends of the earth. And what happens after the martyrdom of Stephen, Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Right? So go back to our our Pentecost map here, right? Where people from every nation under the heaven were in Jerusalem. Sounds pretty eclectic. Every nation traveled. And then the first martyrdom happens. And instead of the story ending, instead, they're scattered. How amazing is that? Like, that's some resurrection authority right there. That's just incredible. Death happens. Yeah, it's all good. We're going to scatter. They're going to help get you to where the gospel needs to be proclaimed. So, go back to scattering. Here's what happens now. Instead of God inviting the nations to come hear the gospel, instead through this scattering, the gospel crosses 
ethnic barriers. The gospel crosses ethnic boundaries. Instead of inviting them to come here, they go and tell. Right? It's this beautiful moment. Or instead of, you got to come here to here, we're going to come to your neighborhood. Essentially what happened here is, the gospel moved into their zip code. Whose zip code? Yep. <laughs> That's what happens here. And because this happens so effectively, and, and people are experiencing the resurrection power of Jesus, people are like, you know what? Y'all are so much into this Jesus guy. I'm going to call you Jesusians. That doesn't roll off the tongue. Jesusians. That's weird too. Jesusians. That's worse. Okay, you think Jesus is the Christ, right? That's your word for Messiah. I'm going to call you Christians. That still doesn't sound right. I got it. Christians. Y'all are so into this. We're going to call you names. You're little Christ's Acts chapter 11 in Antioch is the first time that the word Christians is used. Beautifully used, not as a compliment. Can we just circle back? I'm not trying to, to say this again and again. But this whole thing of being called a Christian actually started with us having thicker skin. We were like, why, yes, I am. Thank you. We didn't hop on social media and go, can you believe the left would call us this? We were like, okay. Let's call ourselves Christians. Let's make t-shirts. <laughs> and that's where we sort of landed the plane. That was in Acts 11. We, we landed the plane in Acts chapter 12 where the gospel is still in Judea and Samaria. And here's what's happening in the text that we read this morning. The mission... Of what? Of proclaiming to the nations in the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Christ, right? The mission becomes missions. It becomes a plan. It becomes an effective strategy. It becomes an intentionality on the part of the people of God. It becomes what we call global missions or faith promise missions or, or whatever a different church might would call it. All of a sudden the mission has survived enough to become strategically, we are sending you out to the nations. And this is where the story still exists today. Otherwise, neither you nor I would ever have heard of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right? And if you're like me, when I first heard about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it wasn't just in my own language, it was on my own level. I was told, hey, little kid, guess what? Right? My mom, she's here today. She told me, you're a sinner. <laughs> and eventually she told me, and that's why Jesus died for you. Know, and that's why he rose from the dead. So that you can have a relationship with God. Man, I heard that younger than I can remember first hearing it. You know why? Because a thing existed called Missions. And it got the gospel to me. Because this thing we are a part of has always been, and until Jesus comes, will always be a global story. And part of the reason I think that's important, I guess this morning is just the morning of venting a little bit. Is that okay? Are we cool? Okay. So I, 
I am sick and tired of being told that what I believe about Jesus is a white, middle-class, red-state, gun-toting, southern worldview. I'm sick and tired of being told what I believe. Listen, Jesus wasn't white. This might really offend people, but Jesus looked way more like Osama bin Laden than me. I don't mean that heretical. If that offended you, talk to Lance after the service. (laughs) I don't mean that ugly. That's just true, right? White middle class. What? Jesus is the savior of the world. The gospel has flourished more in the third world throughout human history than it has in the first world. This isn't our message. We don't claim ownership, y'all. We've been invited into the story, which has always been the story. As that the invitation is for every person. This is not a political message. What in the world? It influences the way I see everything in life, which has to include politics. But Jesus was not a Republican. Jesus never got to vote. He had an emperor who didn't really care what his views were on anything. And he never once had hurt feelings about it. He's loved people and proclaimed truth. I do not need a politician to agree with me for me to believe what I believe. It's okay. White middle class gospel of Jesus Christ. I will say this, though, right? So um, we are cautious as a church to not be overly political or patriotic because we exist for one mission, namely the proclamation of Jesus Christ. When I was young, those lines were a little bit blurred. They talked more about America than the kingdom of heaven. And one of the things I would hear a lot is God has his hand on America in a special way. And when I would hear that, everybody would go, amen, right, right, hallelujah, you're done. (laughs) And here's the deal. I've now traveled enough of the world to proudly say God has his hand on America in a special way. It's, It's weird. We have a freedom that isn't common, not just not common today. Hasn't been common throughout human history. It's worth celebrating. We've also been given unique resources. I've traveled enough that there is nowhere else I would rather live. I did not pick here. I was just born here. But I'm really glad I got here. Somebody said to me this morning, I was like, you look like an, you're dressed like you're for the islands. He's like, you go to the islands all the time. I'm like, yeah, third world, like terrible. Get me out of here before I get to these islands. I haven't traveled anywhere that I've been like, this would be a better place to live and raise a family. But hold on. What if God's favor in this moment isn't primarily something to be celebrated, but to be stewarded? 
And that the reason we do appropriately celebrate it is to remind ourselves to steward it. We have a responsibility in a story that's bigger than us to shepherd and steward our moment in the story with the resources and the freedom and the opportunity that God has given us so that every single person alive on planet Earth hears about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Since this thought's been strong on my heart for months, I had this moment last Sunday at the Rangers game with TSM on the Lord's Day. We're such a liberal church. We went to a baseball game on the Lord's Day. And everybody stood during the seventh inning stretch so that someone could sing God Bless America. And it was weird, that idea, God please bless us. And because I'm a pastor and I'm broken, I just thought, how many of you jokers went to Ecclesia today? How many of y'all blessed the Lord before you asked him to bless you? I'm just saying this thing of God's blessing and favor on America is not just primarily something to enjoy. It's something to steward. I spent way more time on that than I intended to. I got to keep moving. So. This global story that we've not just been invited into, but that we have a responsibility to steward is visible in this text. Real quick, I want us to run through the text again. Just verse number one. And I want us to just look at these five names. We got Barnabas. We got Simeon. We got Lucius. We got Menaean. And we've got Saul. But that's not all we've got. The fact that more information is given about these individuals, I think, is supposed to be noteworthy for us. As a matter of fact, it could have just said there were some people. Didn't even have to give us their names, let alone their descriptions. Now, we know a whole lot about Saul, right? Less than 10 years earlier in the story, he was trying to kill the people called Christians. That's what I would call life change in Jesus. We know about Barnabas. He's got three names. His birth name was Joseph. There's a bunch of them in the Bible, so they called him Barnabas. I'm just kidding. That's not why. His name's Son of Encouragement. That's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool nickname. He's so encouraging. He's like the offspring of encouragement. But here's what's important about Barnabas that we've already learned. He's from Cyprus. So it's important that we know he's very Greek. He is, fourth nickname, Big Fat Greek Encourager. (laughs) There you go. There's another nickname for Barnabas. So that's important to know about him. Then we've got Simeon. Oh, this is so cool. All right. So Simeon, who is called Niger. Technically, this word is pronounced Niger, which is way too close to a word that does not belong ever on the words of a Jesus follower. And it would be easy to be like, quick, let's just stay away from Simeon's nickname because we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to accidentally say it wrong. But it's in the text on purpose. See, we think of that word in this horrible way because of our horrible history. But do you know that this is a compliment to him? 
If we think this was meant to be offensive, that means we're actually reading the Bible through the lenses of our own racial experiences. But historically, he was complimented by being called a Latin word that means dark or black. For 2,000 years, God has preserved through the Holy Spirit information to make sure that you know that at the conference table of the executive leadership team of the Genesis moment of the mission becoming missions is a dark person. He wants you to know that. Which makes this movement unlike any other movement in the Roman Empire. What do you mean there's diversity at the table in day one? It's unheard of. And I, not just diversity in the room. Well, we're welcome to everybody. No, no, they're in charge. Like this eclectic group of people from all different places, this diverse, they're the leadership team together. So some scholars think, that's an important word. We don't know this. We think, maybe. Some scholars speculate that this is actually Simon of Cyrene. And if you've been around the story of of Jesus for a long time in your life, maybe you remember the name Simon of Cyrene. Jesus had been so badly beaten that he was barely alive as he had to carry his own cross down the Via Dolorosa towards the place of the skull, Golgotha, and He fell under the weight of his own cross, and the Roman soldiers grabbed an individual from the crowd, as they often did. Apparently that was common if a person was beaten too much prior to their crucifixion, as they couldn't make it the whole way with their cross. And so they grabbed a guy from the crowd, told him, hey, you have to help Jesus carry your cross. His name was Simon. And we're told he's from Cyrene. And here's why that's important. That's in Africa. The first two names here are a Greek dude and an African dude sitting at the head of the conference table. Maybe. We don't know that for sure. But we know for sure that he was dark-skinned. We know for sure he was a person of color. And we know for sure Lucius was for sure from Cyrene. Because they flat out say he's from Cyrene. So we think that two of the first three names listed are from northern Africa. I think that's pretty awesome. Lucius, which is a cool name, by the way. Then we got Menaean, eh. a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch. We talked about Herod last spring. I don't pretend to assume that you all remember Herod. That's Herod Antipas. He's the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. That's the same Herod that Jesus, after his mock trial in the beginning, in the middle of the night, rather, in the beginning of the next day, they send in a pilot. Pilot's like, I don't know why y'all want to kill this guy. I'm going to send him up the food chain to the next person in charge, Herod Antipas. And Herod's like, I don't want anything to do with this. Sends him back to Pilate. Pilate washes his hands, says, what do y'all want to do? They said, we want to crucify him. That's the same Herod Antipas, an evil, wicked man. And it says he was a lifelong friend. It's a difficult phrase. If you're using a different English translation, it might say a foster brother which is actually probably a better translation than lifelong friend because it doesn't just mean that they were friends. It means they were in the same house together. We don't know for sure that he would have been orphaned back then. You could foster a friend's child because your home was more influential or more powerful or uh, more wealthy. 
And so we don't know what his parents' situation was, but in the Greek text, it's believed he would have lived in that. He was part of the family of the most evil dude alive at the time. Which is another really beautiful story because it means Jesus doesn't discriminate about the color of our skin or our past. How good is that? And then Saul, good grief. If anybody is evidence of that, it's Saul. This is the last time we see him called Saul. He's going to be called Paul later in the chapter because he is sent to Greek-speaking communities where they would naturally call him Paul and not Saul. This list is important for a couple reasons. Number one, because I think Jesus wants to make it perfectly clear to every generation who would come after. There is no space for racial discrimination among the people of the resurrection. And I don't just mean everybody's welcome here. I'm talking in leadership. Here's the other reason I think we're given this information. is So we know that these are real people with real names from real places. This isn't a fairy tale. We do not follow a religious book. We don't follow a history manual either, but it is historically accurate. We believe in a story that actually existed, actually happened. We're following after people whose lives were actually changed by the same resurrected Jesus that we follow today. And it's a reminder, yet again, that from the beginning, we serve a global God whose mission is that the gospel will be proclaimed here and there and everywhere. So the question is, how are we doing with that? Hang with me for a few more minutes. I know what time it is. Hang with me. If you don't, don't look at your watch or your phone. A couple of years ago, um, if you follow Neil or I on social media, you saw that we shared something from a guy that I think the world of, Pastor Tim Keller. He shared some data from an organization called Pew Research that's worth revisiting in this context today. I want you to see this graph. It's going to be hard for you to read where you're from, but this is trying to give us a picture of where these different religions, where they fall in the population grid. Like what part of Asian Pacific are Hindus? I don't know if you can tell, but there's a little bit of another color there that would be North America, right? Not, not very global in this picture, right? Same graph for Buddhists and then folk religions and other religions and unaffiliated. Islam is listed here. Why don't you look down here? This is Christians. This is that insulting, terrible nickname they gave us that we gladly embrace. Look how even this is. That is 24%. That's 24%. That's 26%. And then a pretty even, because we don't make up a huge chunk of the population. So I know that we think, or we're told rather, that that. Christianity is a North American religion. Really, we're, we're actually one of the smaller squares on here. Look, at, right? <laughs> Best moment of the whole day right there. I think so, too. I think it's amazing. Here's what this research is showing. Here's what this research is showing. The gospel is being proclaimed in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Here's what this is showing. Give me this map. What it's showing is the Holy Spirit was given so that we could speak the power of the resurrection 
at home and in our region and everywhere else we know of and the places we didn't even know existed yet. That's how it got to me and you. Praise God. He's doing good. I hear so many songs and thoughts and and tweets about God, do a new thing. And and here's the deal. His mercies are new every morning. God's doing new things or whatever. But really, I think we need to get over our obsession with new. And we need to realign with the timeless authority and power of a great commission on the church today to get the gospel in our home, in our neighborhood, in our city, and around the world for the glory of God. God, do a new thing. God, wake me up to the real thing. Which might be new for my heart today. But it's not really new. It's timeless. And it's unstoppable. It's so unstoppable. I I was going to cut this, but i got to say this. John the baptizer said, somebody's coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie the dude's shoes. The Messiah is coming. He's coming. And then he sees Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember what he said? He went, everybody look. Behold, the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of Of the world. They didn't even know what the world was at that time. How's that for prophetic utterance? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin from places we don't even know exist. That's quite a Lamb. But another John, John the Apostle, because of opposition, is exiled, awaiting his death. And he's given a A Holy Spirit vision of a day that I believe with all of my heart is coming. He said, I saw a vision where a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. And they were standing before the throne and crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is not just what God's been up to. It's what he will continue to be up to until that great day. And the question is not what's God doing. It's are we standing in our moment of the story and finding our identity in that mission. Our purpose in that mission that's greater than us. I'll close with this thought and... Sometimes I hear people say, how could a loving God allow someone to spend eternity separated from him? Which is a fair question. Can we be honest? That's a hard question. How can a loving God allow someone to spend eternity apart from him? You know what God did because of that tragic thought? He laid... He laid aside his glory and he humbled himself and took on human flesh and lived in a broken, ugly, sweaty world. 
and then was executed so that no one would ever have to experience that. And so the question this morning is not so much how could a loving God allow anyone to spend eternity apart from him? The question is how could I, after hearing about the glory of resurrection, keep the story to myself? If there are people on my street or on my planet who've not yet heard about the resurrection hope of Jesus Christ, how can I not tell them or help somebody else get to them? And that's our mission. That's our purpose. This story and then I'm actually done. Every year for Vacation Bible School, we do a global offering. And the reason we do that is because we are trying, even at a young age, to help the young people at Temple Ministries see a world that's bigger than just themselves. And this year, the cause that we chose to partner with, because of uh, what we're seeing God do right now among the Haitian refugee villages in the Dominican Republic, specifically the village of New Jerusalem, they're trying to start a preschool this week, same week we're starting ours. They needed supplies for their classroom, My brother Greg's helping fundraise for them. I said, how much do you need? He said, three grand. We usually collected our little VBS offering about $3,500. So in great faith, I said, oh, we can do three grand. So VBS shows up. We make the announcement, hey, we're raising funds for this preschool in the Dominican, in this Haitian refugee village. And the first night we collected less than $200, which is not normally how it is the first night. No worries. The second night we collected a little over 200. Uh-oh. Maybe I should have prayed about this before I told Greg. Yes. Our missions fund currently um, is not exactly what we would call in the black. So we're not going to be able to make up the difference. God, what are you going to do here? And man, did you guys ever show up. We did not raise $3,500 this year. But we did raise about $4,600 this year. Because we think that Haitian children living in the Dominican Republic need to hear that Jesus died for them and rose again and will give them hope today, right here, right now. 